what does it mean to be an outcast? Have you ever experienced being cast out or separated from a group or excluded, maybe a more modern term, left out? What does that feel like to be an outcast? We're going to kind of look into that this morning. Um, I had a, <laughs> an outcast story. I've got a couple of them, but I'll give you a, a simple one at first. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved watching basketball. Um, I grew up watching right at the dawn of Magic Johnson and, and Larry Bird. Uh, Dominique Wilkins was my favorite. I was a big Atlanta Hawks fan because I grew up in Georgia. Um, I really didn't like Michael Jordan because he always seemed to beat us. Um, <laughs> but I, li I liked watching basketball a lot. It was my favorite thing to watch as far as sports go. Um, I, football was okay, baseball was okay, but I, I was a basketball guy. Um, but when I was a kid, I wanted to play basketball, so my dad signed me up for Little League Basketball. <clears throat> and I tried out for this team, and I went, went on this, this Little League team, and, and um, I was too short to play anything but point guard. <laughs> um, so I was a point guard. Um, but the coach's son was the starting point guard. He was very good, a great ball handler, you know. Um, so I was the backup point guard. Well, being that I wasn't great at playing basketball, even though I loved watching it, um, I didn't get to play. And I don't mean I didn't get to play much. I didn't get to play ever. <laughs> I played in practice. And, you know, I was on the, the B team in practice, I guess you call it. But when it came to an actual game, I never seemed to actually play. The, the coach's son, the starting point guard, always played. Um, we went through an entire season like that. And at the end of the season, we get to this last game we're playing. And, of course, I'm sitting on my regular position down at the end of the bench, keeping it warm and rooting for the team. And uh, this, the point guard, coach's son, gets in foul trouble. And so the coach is left with no choice but to put me in. So he's like, keys, go in. And since I had never played in a game, I was really nervous. And we were inbounding the ball from the sideline, which I had never done in a game or practice for that matter. And so the, the ref hands me the ball and I just stand there, and I didn't know what to do. And I kind of hand it back to the ref, and the ref just looks at me, and the ball falls out of my hands, and the ref blows his whistle and gives the ball back to the other team. And the coach says, Keys, go sit down, and puts somebody else in. So that was the only time I actually if you could count it as playing, played in a game. And from that moment on, I kind of decided, maybe I'm not a basketball player. <laughs> there were some feelings of, of outcast in that. There were some feelings of exclusion. It was tough as a little kid to feel like that. Um, and I never played organized basketball again after that. Um, but I say all that to say 
when you feel cast out, when you feel separated or you feel excluded, um, there are all these things that the enemy would say to you about your identity and who you are. Not just that you're not included, but that's who you are. Um, when Jesus comes, he wants to cut right through all that. Um, uh, last week, Mitch was talking about changing our perspective and looking at things in a new way. That was Jesus. He was a perspective changer. He was a, somebody who flipped the script of what everybody was used to. He was a script flipper. That was Jesus. Constantly script flipping. Um, so let's look at some scripture where he flips some scripts. Um, if you guys would put up the first scripture. So Matthew 8, um, it talks about a leper. Leprosy was being outcast. Um, it was just a catchphrase for a lot of different diseases that had to do with the human skin, with flesh. And it was something you could see. You couldn't hide being a leper. It would show up. And everybody was terrified of it. Um, they didn't want to, first of all, they didn't want to catch that disease from somebody, so they didn't want to touch them. Second of all, they didn't want to be also become an outcast. You know? Um, lepers were somebody who were separated from their own family. They couldn't be around them. They were separated from community. They really couldn't hang out in any kind of community group. They really didn't have a place to live. Most of them were pretty much homeless. They were just wandering around outcast. And that was life for a leper. And here comes Jesus and runs into a guy like this. And so when Jesus came down from the mountain, all of these crowds were pouring around him. And this leper comes to him, which I'm sure scared a lot of people around Jesus, and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And the first thing Jesus does is flip the script. Because you're not supposed to touch lepers especially if you're a rabbi or a holy man they wouldn't touch anybody who was unclean not Jesus he has no problem with this he immediately reaches out and touches this guy who nobody's touched in a long time it's the first thing he does he probably had gasps from people around him <gasps> Jesus touched him so he reaches right through that boundary and touches this guy. And the next thing he says is, simply, I will be clean. And immediately the guy's healed. So he's flipping scripts here when it comes to outcast. To Jesus, this is not an outcast. This is not somebody who's untouchable. This is somebody who needs to be redeemed and healed. And if you think about what Jesus has done here, he didn't just heal the guy's body. He healed his whole life. He's restoring this guy from outcast to included. From homeless to community. From lonely to family. He's bringing him back in. And we're going to see Jesus as he walks through his ministry, constantly doing this. He's constantly bringing people 
who are outcast and including them and bringing them back in. No matter what they're outcast by, whether it's physical problems, things that get in their way with, with, that they need to be healed, or whether it's sin or stigma, things that are over somebody that society has placed over them. And he's constantly reaching out to these people who are lost and finding them and bringing them back in. Um, if you would, go to the next scripture. So, here's Jesus, and he's interacting with all of these people. And of course, the uprighteous people, the holy people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, you know, they're like, well, you're a rabbi, you should want to spend time with us. And he does spend time with them. There's lots of situations where Jesus talks to the upright people, the good people, the special people, the included people, the inner circle people. But he doesn't just hang out with them. He hangs out with everybody, which kind of flipped their script. They really weren't used to that. Um, and so they kind of challenge that. Here, and this happens right after this healing. Um, and so as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, he, so he's having dinner with, with these guys. With the, he's having dinner with the good people, with the, the included righteous people. And many tax collectors and sinners came and were, crying, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So other people are being included in the party who are not normally included in this kind of party right? <laughs> Rabbi probably doesn't want to have the tax collector show up for dinner. We really don't want the leper to show up for, for breakfast, right? We're not into that. Jesus doesn't care. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he not adhering to the script? Did he not get the memo? Does Jesus not understand that there are good people and undesirable people and that you're not supposed to have dinner with the undesirable people. But when Jesus hears this, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, Jesus understands that to him, all needed redemption. He looks at the, the holy people the included, the special people, and doesn't see them as well. He sees them as sick also. They needed their scripts flipped because that's what was wrong. That's how they were afflicted or sick was their mindset. So to him, everybody's sick. But he understands their viewpoint that they are well and others are sick. But he's kind of challenging them and saying, well, if you guys are fine, if you don't need anything, you don't really need me, right? I'll go hang out with the people who need me. And it's a, a script flip. But he goes on and says, go and learn what this means. And to say this to learned men was a challenge. I'm sure they had heard this scripture. He's quoting from the book of Hosea. But he's challenging them and saying, you don't know what this means. Go and learn what it means. And he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, he's calling everybody. 
So there's not righteous people and sinners in reality. In reality, there are not sick lepers and clean people. Everybody's sick. Everybody is unrighteous. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But what he's saying is, you need to understand what category you fit in. There is no righteous. If you'll put yourself in the sinner category, if you put yourself in the undesirable category with the people you pushed away, then I can include you. So he's flipping the script and challenging the way they see things. Um, and if you look at Hosea 6.6, 6, where this, this comes from, Jesus is quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament because that's the version people knew. And so he would quote what they knew. But the Hebrew version, if you look at it, literally says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God wants, and the Hebrew word is chesed, and it means loving kindness, steadfast love. What he doesn't want is for us to give him sacrifice to measure up or make the minimum requirement into a group. He wants to give us loving kindness. This is what he desires. Um, and the Hebrew word really is kind of a sense of receiving loving kindness. And so this is what he desires for us to receive this. A lot of these structures that were set up in people's minds of who was righteous, who was not, who was sick, who was well, who was accepted, who was outcast, were in the way of understanding what we needed, and that was just simply to receive God's love. Um, so we're going to talk about a story. And you guys have probably heard a title for this story. We typically call it the prodigal son. Um, if you would go to the next scripture. Um, and it's in Luke 15. We're going to go through parts of this. But I want to flip the script on the very title of the story. And if you notice on the notes, I, I put the unprodigal son. I actually wanted to say something more provocative, and Tulio was like, okay. <laughs> but um, the reason I said that is because Jesus himself never uses the word prodigal. There is no Greek word for prodigal. The word prodigal did not exist until 1500. The 1500s. So that's 1,500 years after Jesus. And it's an English word. And we made it up. Which we do with a lot of English words. We like to make up words in English. Um, but Jesus never used the word prodigal. If you look in your Bible, and when I look in mine, it's in there. But it's not scripture. It's a subtitle that somebody stuck in my Bible over the top of this scripture. Who did that? Because it wasn't Jesus. It was some biblical scholar more than a thousand years later who was trying to come up with a way to describe this story. And so they used this title, The Prodigal Son. If you look up the definition for prodigal, and it was hard to look it up because can you guys think of any other place 
in literature where anybody uses the term prodigal unless they're referring back to this story as an analogy. I don't, I don't remember anybody having a conversation with me where they just slipped the word prodigal into a sentence. Right? We don't typically use the word prodigal. Kind of because it's a nasty word at this point. But originally the word prodigal didn't mean what we think of it now. It, it meant lavish or extravagant. It was something they, they cooked up to refer to probably kings and queens, people who lived lavishly or extravagantly. But in their mindset, the kings and queens deserved to live that way. So it wasn't necessarily a criticism. The place it took on a negative connotation was because some biblical scholar gave this story that name, and we began to apply reckless and wasteful to it, not just extravagant or lavish. And so using this story as a subtitle in our scriptures and all of the Christians over the years who have read this, we've changed the meaning of the word to mean something different. And more importantly, we labeled somebody with the word prodigal which Jesus never did. To Jesus, there wasn't a prodigal son or an unprodigal son. There were just sons. To Jesus, there's no prodigal daughter or unprodigal daughter. There's just daughters. So let's look at the story. And we know how the story goes. There was a man with two sons. Somebody who was of importance, had money, and his sons had an inheritance coming to them, right? And we know what happens. The younger son demands the inheritance before his dad's dead. Like, he's not patient enough to wait for dad to pass away and then inherit it. He's like, I want it all now. Hook me up now. Um, I identify a lot with this guy. Um, and my, my life has looked a lot like this. I often wanted my inheritance early and then ended up losing it. Um, in my life. So I identify a lot with this guy. Um, but yeah, this is what happens. And we know the story. Um, he took all of this money. He left his father's house, went off and took a journey into a far country and squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose and he began to be in need. You can go on to the next scripture. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens. So he had to go get a job. He was living the high life, having a great time, enjoying himself, um, on vacation, apparently. <laughs> and he blew it all and had to go get a job. And it was a bad time to get a job because there was a famine. And so he finds himself sent to the fields to feed pigs. And he's so hungry that he, would, he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. That's a, that, that's, that's a reversal of fortune, quite literally, isn't it? Um, just for him to go from having all of these means and enjoying himself and having a good time to finding himself in a muddy pig pit wanting to eat what the pigs have. He's going through some traumatic stuff here, um, some traumatic things going on, and it's going to lead him to do some soul searching. Um, 
This kind of reminds me of people who win the lottery. Um, statistics say a lot of people who win the lottery end up blowing it all in a very short period of time. Um, and I, I'm not going to judge anybody. I don't know what I'd do if I won the lottery. But to go from the excitement of them going, $150 million lottery winner to two or three years later, I'm broke, would be rough. Uh, there are some pro athletes that have done this. They've gone from like $200 million worth of worth to managing a Starbucks. There's one guy I can think of in particular. And he's happy to have that job if you ask him. Like he's given a lot of interviews and said, no, I'm thankful to be working, you know. So that's where this guy's at. Let's go to the next scripture. <clears throat> so when he came to himself, and that's a great way to put it, when he came to himself, when he thought about who he really was and thought about his identity and where he came from, what is his conclusion? How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I'm starving to death. I'm going to go home. But look what he says about going back to his father. He said, I'm going to arise, go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as a servant. Um, this is, it's repentance of a sort. You know, he's repenting of, of what he's done. He's turning away from his poor choices, recognizing that he's committed a sin, that he wasted all this, that it's not good. There are two words for repentance. Um, these two words, one is a Greek word, and the other, of course, is, is a Hebrew word. But... Uh, The Greek word is metanoia. Uh, it's kind of like metamorphosis. It means a change of mind or inner man. So he's repented in the Greek sense. He's changed his mind. He's changed his thought process. But let's look at the Hebrew. The Hebrew is teshuva. It literally means a return or turning back to something you looked away from. Going back to who you really are. He hasn't quite reached the Hebrew repentance yet. Because he doesn't think he's worthy to go back to his father as a son and to be really included into the inner circle. He's willing to sort of be on the outside and, and work as a slave because um, it would be better than where he's at. But he's not ready to go the full, the full nine <laughs> with turning back to who he is. Um, let's go to the next scripture. And, of course, he arose and came to his father. And so the dad's there worried about his son because there's a famine and he's somewhere in another country and he may have expected to never see him again and may have thought he's probably going to die and he looks off down the distance of this property this farm that he's on and sees the son coming and look at his response he saw him and he got angry about all the money he wasted and started yelling, don't even bother coming in my yard. You blew your inheritance. You worthless, faithless punk, you're not my son anymore. No. That's not his response. The father responds and says, he felt compassion and ran and ran, ran to him and embraced him. He ran to him. And he probably was pretty dirty 
right? He's showing up after working in a pig pen, hasn't had a bath, and the father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. And, the son, and here's the son with his spiel. He's ready to, I've, I've been work, rehearsing this spiel. I'm ready to give dad my, my repentance speech. Here I go. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Go to the next, next slide. What does the father do? What does the father do here? He immediately interrupts the spiel, the, spe- the speech, the, the rehearsed, you know, I'm not worthy to be anything but just junk in the house, you know. I'm not worthy to have back what I had. You know, I sinned. He interrupts that. He interrupts it. And he immediately starts calling servants to restore the son. This is a lot like Jesus putting his hand through the unseen barrier of do not touch and touching. I imagine a lot of the servants didn't expect this. They probably thought, he's going to ask us to bring a whip for this boy. (laughs) Wrong. I imagine outsiders would think this was crazy to receive his son back after doing this. But he immediately starts restoring to who he is. He wants to go from the Greek metanoia to the Hebrew Teshuva, be who you are. I restore you fully to who you really are, my son. And he put a ring on his hand. He dressed him up in the best robe, put shoes on his feet. And then he says, let's throw a party. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. And the words are important here. He says, for this my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus is specifically using words of redemption. Right? Not just forgiveness, but redemption. His son is back. And they begin to celebrate. They throw the party. Let's go to the next scripture. Now there's the older son. (laughs) there's the older son. Um, And I want to say, first of all, that it's important when we're reading this story, not just to label the younger, we don't want to label the younger son with prodigal. Because to the father, he's a son. He's not a prodigal son, he's a son. But we also don't want to label the older brother necessarily. We're quick to, to point the finger at the older brother and go, ah, Here's this older brother, especially those of us who identify with the younger brother, right? It's real, real easy for us to go, don't be judging. (laughs) Dad still loves me. (laughs) Right? Um, I remember some uh, comic strip like meme, and there's Jesus, and he's telling all these people, we have to accept everybody into the fold. And somebody goes, even Stu? 
Yes, even Stu. And Stu goes, yeah, I told y'all. And Jesus is like, Stu, kettle, settle down. Settle down, Stu. <laughs> but we don't want to label the older brother here. The truth is, there is no antagonist in this story. There's no bad guy. The only bad guys in this story are lies, deception, fears, and misunderstood identity. Um, I've been watching a series of videos with my son, Jonathan, and um, it's called The Bible Project. It's on YouTube. It's pretty good. It's animated and narrated, kind of like a documentary. And it's a good opportunity to illustrate things that there's no way we could see now, you know. Um, but one of the things they do is when they're describing people who we see, especially in the Old Testament, as bad guys, as villains, is they don't just show the bad guy, the bad ruler, or the Babylonian, or the Egypt, the Pharaoh. They show this shadowy figure kind of standing behind them to represent the powers, the principalities of darkness, the voices of the enemy that are lying to this human person. So we understand what's really going on. The truth of the matter is, even the pharaohs weren't really bad guys in the sense that God didn't want them. They were just being manipulated and used by those voices and those lies and those spirits. And so if you can imagine this story, the younger brother, when he goes, give me my inheritance, I'm out of here with a shadowy figure behind him giving him this idea. You don't need to stick around and wait for your inheritance. Are you going to be old before you get out of this? We also come to the older brother, and there's some shadowy figures behind him. But there's no antagonist in this story. There's a father, and there are sons. That's who we have here. But let's look at the older brother. Now, his older son was in the field. He was working. He was at work. He was a worker, right? Um, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. What's going on? And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant says to him, your brother's come back and your father killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. This, this is a script flip on the older brother, right? This is a script flip. I imagine this is the same way the Pharisees and the honored people, the religious people felt because they felt like, wait, Jesus is supposed to be throwing us a party, not the tax collectors or the sinners, not those, not the prostitutes, right? He's not, why, why don't we get a party? Why don't we get celebrated? This is how the older brother feels. He's, he's afraid. Why, why didn't I get a party? Why does he get a party? Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? Like, seriously, he had to be appalled at his brother's gall because if he's this type of brother, he's, he's wanting to please the father, wanting to work hard, wanting to honor, wanting to be the good son. To see his brother go, give me my money, I'm out. He had to have been appalled then and be like, oh, I can't believe he asked dad for that. How dishonorable. 
And it was. It was. Right? But then to see this, to see his brother come home, and the father goes straight to the feast, straight to the party, straight to receiving him back in fullness, and feeling like he's not included in the party. But again, remember that shadowy figure behind him who's telling lies to the older brother. Ask yourself this, is the older brother not invited to this party? It's his house. He's the older brother. He's invited too. Let's go to the next scripture. This is a great illustration of what's kind of going on here with the shadowy figure behind the older brother. Um, if you're a Star Wars fan, there are these paths of thought that occur that Yoda would say, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. And the brother here is on this kind of pathway, right? What does the pathway start with? Really kind of fear. Am I doing enough to honor my father? Am I working hard enough? Does he, you know, am I doing what I need to do to be loved? To be a son? Am I really a good son? My brother's not. But I want to be. Can I make up for my own brother's mistakes to honor dad enough that he deserves? Lots of things he's got to be thinking. As a good son. But there's some fear in it. Right? And scripture says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. This is what the father wants to do. The younger brother at this point was afraid that he was going to starve to death and that he was no longer really a son. The perfect love of the father wiped that out, drives out that fear. But the older brother is here looking at what's going on and fearing that he's not included or fearing that he hasn't done enough. Or, or the, the things that older brothers sometimes feel like, my younger brother gets everything, right? He gets, they let him get away with murder. <laughs> Which I'm sure at some point my sisters have thought about me. I can't believe he did that. <laughs> you know, the, older, the older, younger dynamic thing, you know? Those feelings are based in fear. For fear has to do with what? Punishment. If I don't work hard and honor my father and do what I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm going to receive punishment. I won't be worthy of being a son. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's some part of this older brother that has not been perfected in love. Let's find out what it is. Go to the next scripture. His father came out to him and entreated him. This is so important to understand because Jesus is not talking about a human father. This is a parable where he's trying to relay the heart of God the Father. And so when he speaks about the father, he is showing you God the Father as a human father, what he would do. And what does he do? Not only does he pursue the younger brother who's been lost and run to him, wrap him up, give him back his identity, redeem him, throw a party, celebrate that he's okay, but he also goes after the older brother. He loves the older brother too. 
the father leaves. He could sit in there in the party and go, I don't know where your brother's at. This is a fat party. He's missing out. Maybe he'll get over all this junk and come in here. He doesn't do that. He leaves the party and goes after the older brother because he loves him too, deeply. And he entreats him, come to the party. Come on. And so here's the the older brother's fears. Here they come. Look, these many years I've served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, I love how he puts that. He doesn't say, this brother of mine. He says, this son of yours, no brother of mine, right? When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property? Wow, he gets pretty raw here. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes? I don't remember reading that part about the younger son. So I think the brother's kind of like, let's paint it as bad as we can. Like, it's not enough that he did the things he did. I'm going to tag this on there. You know? <laughs> you killed the fatted calf for him. You threw him a party? So he's mad and afraid that he, he, he doesn't have the right to ask his father for a party. This is what he's, he's, he's afraid of. He's afraid of, I got to put my nose to the grindstone. I got to honor my dad. I cannot enjoy my inheritance until I've waited patiently for my father to pass away, and then I may enjoy it. Instead of saying, I want a party, let's go to the next scripture. So he's got a, he's got a, a, a misunderstanding of his identity with the father. In a sense, he sees himself as an outsider at this point, which has to be terrifying if you've always felt like you were the insider, if you've always felt like you were the accepted and the honorable one, the good one, and suddenly you, oh, I'm on the outside. I'm not included. And so the enemy's back there behind him with that shadow lying to him and telling him, your brother gets everything. You don't get squad. Get nothing. The father corrects this. He gives the older brother identity too, and he says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. That's his identity. Not, I got to put my nose to the grindstone. It's the, I love you with everything I have. Mi casa es su casa. It's your house. It was fitting to celebrate me glad, for your brother was dead. And is alive, he was lost and found. So he's correcting the brother's misunderstanding of identities for both brothers. Because at this point, the older brother sees the younger brother as prodigal son. And the father says, no, he's my son. He's seeing himself as, got to put my nose to the grindstone son. And the father says, also, that's not your identity. You are also beloved son. You can have everything of mine. And so we need to understand this because we're all going to be in situations where at some point we're the, we're the younger son or we're the older son. Um, I'll tell you another story. Um, I was a little reticent to tell this story because it's got a lot of 
to it emotionally. Um, when I was in college, I used to attend a small Christian college. Um, at the time, I was a mess. I was struggling with drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and depression, and um, everybody knew it, which is what happens in a small, a small college, small school. Everybody knows your business, you know. Um, I was part of the, the college choir. We go to choir practice, and um, sometimes after choir practice, the choir director would ask one of the students to give a brief devotional, kind of a sermonette, word of encouragement, read a scripture, say something positive to everybody, brief. One day, I'm there, and a young man stands up in front of, it's probably 60 people in this group, and we're all just sitting there, and he starts giving sermonette, but this is not a typical little word of encouragement. This is more like hellfire and brimstone. Um, he starts talking about his girlfriend and this young woman she knows in the dorms. I mean, he doesn't mention the young woman by name, although we knew who she was. But he said his girlfriend discovered that this girl was struggling with drugs. And they were deeply concerned. And so they confronted her and pushed her to tell them where she had gotten the drugs from. And guess where she had gotten them from? Prodigal. Right here. Um, now, <laughs> he goes on and on. And he begins to say, we as a community need to cast out the sinners. We need to find these people, this person. And he's looking directly at me. And he's saying, this young man is being a bad influence on people on our campus. And he needs to go. We need to confront him and ask him to leave so that he is not a bad influence on people. Until he repents of his sin, he doesn't need to be here again. Maybe never again. He needs to go. And so I call on all of you, brothers and sisters, to confront this man if you know him. And he's speaking about me in front of me without mentioning my name, although we all know who he's talking about. Now, a lot of the things he said I was guilty of, I was guilty. I was guilty. Can't, can't deny that one. I was. There were some things he said I was guilty of that I wasn't. I was not a drug dealer, which he referred to me as. Label. Right? I did not intentionally mean to hurt other people's lives, which he accused me of. There were some things, it was kind of like the, the older brother tagging on that wasting you know, away his inheritance with prostitutes. Let's just tag that on there. He was tagging on a lot of stuff. And I sat there just not knowing what to say. And I saw all these reactions from some people in the group. Some were cringing. You know, some were like, yeah, let's get some torches. <laughs> uh, old Ted's Frankenstein. We need to chase him out of town. <laughs> 
You know, so there were a lot of different reactions. Um, after he was done, I left. Nobody said anything to me. I, I, don't, I don't know that anybody knew what to say. I never set foot on that campus again. I didn't finish school. It was in the middle of the semester. Um, there were some responsibilities that I had that I didn't complete. I was the editor of the school yearbook and newspaper. They were left to finish all that without me. I feel bad about that. Um, some students would come. To, I didn't live on campus. I lived in a, an old house with a bunch of guys who were all on drugs on the other side of town. <laughs> it was a mess, <laughs> literally and figuratively and emotionally. Um, but I had some people from campus come to the house to come talk to me. Um, to my knowledge, all of them were trying to be kind, but I wouldn't answer the door. I literally told my roommates, if anybody from campus shows up, tell them I'm not here and I'm not, I don't want to talk to anybody. So I remember sitting in the living room and hearing my roommate in the other room say, he didn't want to talk to you. Good day. <laughs> um, it was hard. It was emotionally crushing to have somebody call me out like that in public. Um, I was already dealing with a lot of depression and guilt, and this didn't make things better. And it took me years to forgive this guy. And honestly, I don't remember his name. I didn't know him that well. Um, but praise God, some good things happened after that. Um, I got healed from addiction and drugs and started hanging out with a big group of Christian students at a different place who were very welcoming, kind. Um, I started performing in a, a Christian music group. We were traveling around the country at some point. And I'd give testimony up on stage. And periodically, I'd run into people that knew me from my Frankenstein days. <laughs> I even ran into some people who were at that little party, the, the uh, cast of Sinners Out party. Um, <laughs> But I would get these cool reactions when I gave testimony. And somebody who knew me would come up to me and go, Ted, look at what God's done in your life. That's awesome. And it was like a party. It was the welcome back tour. <laughs> you know? uh, I still run into people on Facebook sometimes who I haven't seen who like knew me from high school. And they're like, you got saved? Praise God. I thought you'd be dead, Ted. Seriously. It's, it's, and the party goes on. I get to celebrate more. Um, I've never run into that young man. But the Lord has brought me full circle to understand something about him. The only way he could stand up there with that much anger and that much bitterness was that he also did not know the love of God in fullness. There was fear in what he was saying. He was afraid of me. You know? And so I have prayed often and many times after forgiving him. I hope, Lord, that he does know the unmitigated love of God the way I do now. Um, my wife was talking to me the other day about forgiveness. And she said, well, she said, when, when you want to know whether you've really forgiven somebody of something they've done to hurt you, picture running into them in heaven. 
and what your response would be at that moment. <laughs> For a long time, if I saw him in heaven, <laughs> I know this behavior is not good in heaven, right? I'm not supposed to feel like this in heaven. <laughs> but I believe the Lord is transforming all of us to when we get there, we will see each other and embrace. We will be brothers at the party, bathing and basking in the fun of the Lord's love. That will be blessed in that way. And that's what I want for him. And it's what I want for me. And it's what I want for the older brother and the younger brother and you is to understand the fullness of his love that transcends all of these things that would hold us back. Guilt, feeling like we're not worthy anymore, that we, we lost it, we squandered it, we were a prodigal, right? Uh, anger, how dare they? <laughs> I, I've never been to a party that I, I've been to a lot of parties. I've never been to a party that I enjoyed while I was ticked off. You guys ever enjoy going to a party when you're angry? Come it. I burned the ribs. <laughs> um, yeah, anger, bitterness. When we let let our fears push us to anger and push us to bitterness, we, we can't really receive that unmitigated party of God's love for us if we're stuck in that. Um, if you feel like, well, they never included me. Well, I'm welcome at the party now, but you jerks never invited me before. You know? <laughs> Jealousy? Well, it's their party, not my party. I'm not really enjoying myself. All of these things that those shadowy figures standing behind us would tell us. When what the Lord wants to give us is a party. He wants us to celebrate in his love and enjoy it and not be held back by any of this stuff. Um, I've got one more scripture and I don't have it up there, but I'll read it to you guys. This is actually the same scripture we ended the Hanani moments on. Um, and it's from Revelations. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And it's Jesus speaking through the Apostle John, which is cool. Um, this is especially cool because the Jesus we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the Gospels is a living, physical Jesus talking. And so I think sometimes we think of the words he said as if Jesus said those words and went away. But the Jesus in Revelation is the living Jesus. He's alive right now. He's right here with us in this room. And here is what he says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. I'm standing out here waiting for it. Jesus is right here outside your, your door, whatever it is, in your mind, waiting for you to open the door. He's, hello, who is it? 
is Jesus. Can I come in? He's, he's, he has the heart of the Father. He wants to run across the field and scoop us up dirty and clean us up and restore us. He wants to run out to us, leave the party and run out to us and heal our bitterness or our anger, whatever it is that's holding us back. Come into the party. Come in. Because the truth is, none of us are prodigal sons or daughters. We're all just sons and daughters of the Most High God who loves us unabashedly. So today I would just say to you, flip the script. Whatever script it is in your head that's holding you back or that you, you've circled through over and over again, and maybe it's literally an older brother, younger brother kind of thing. Flip the script and go to the party. God wants you to walk into that party and be transformed into someone who fear has been chased away by his love. All of your reservations are pushed away by his love. So today, if there's any, any script that's holding you back, the usual routine, the old identity you've had, the old identity you've given someone you're bitter with, the frustrations, whatever they are that's keeping you back, flip the script. He's knocking right now. Just open the door and let him in. So we're just going to, I want to pray today. Yeah, man. Amen. Uh, you know, I, I love that story. And again, he brought a new newness to it about, you know, really thinking about titles that we wear, <laughs> that we hold on to, that we associate ourselves with. And, um, one of the biggest things I heard him say is that, you know, there were no antagonistic, there's no, there's no people in this story, antagonistic people. It's the, it's the lies. It's the things that are in the backdrop of um, our, our lives that are lying or speaking or declaring or that we've uh, attributed to, you know, our, our lives, you know, y'all heard me share the, this story a lot, you know, in my in my life. But you know, that whole thing about, you know, I, when I came to the Lord, I believed He loved me because He had to, but I didn't believe He liked me. That was an antagonistic lie that chased me down to a place where I really, you know, I, I just had zero, not a whole lot of confidence. But all of a sudden, there was that day. That the, that the Lord said, Mitch, I, I like you. Not only do I love you, I like you. I like everything about you. There's some things in you that I haven't said about you, I haven't given you, but there are things that, uh, that you can get rid of. You can put on the boat, as uh, uh, Lindsay put it, and burn it, but I like you. And so I felt like the Lord today is just really just asking the question, and I wrote this, are we receiving the compassion and loving kindness of God? Are we receiving the embrace that he desires that, that to, to give you? Are you open to, to receive that embrace? Are you open to receiving the kiss and the affection of the Lord? Are, are you re, are able to receive the ring, the robe, you know, the 
the, um, the fatted calf. And I think it goes back to what Jared spoke. There's this table that he's setting before you. Don't eat the junk. Don't, eat, don't believe the lies. And I think a lot of the junk is just the lies and the, the enemies of, this, of our lives in this world. And so I, are, we, are we receiving that reception? And do you know, maybe you are the older, you've, you associate more with the older brother. Do you know that all that is his is what? Yours. That's what he told the older brother. All that is mine is yours. So I want you to stand. I just want to pray that over us. Can I have uh, some of the prayer people come? I just feel like that. This, it's just this new place that God wants to take you. Maybe you have believed in the lie that you are that prodigal son or that prodigal brother, and we're just going to believe and break off the lies today. We're believing for that today. And I'm just going to invite you. Um, there'll be some men and women up here at the, at the end. Just if there's some things that you just need to throw off, like just get help putting on the boat and getting it burned, I'm just going to believe that the Lord is speaking to you today. Lay it down. Uh, get rid of it. Toss it away. So, Lord, I just pray right now in Jesus' name. Thank you for this word, Lord, this, this declaration. Lord, we thank you that you are extravagant in your love. Lord, thank you that, Lord, with both brothers, you went to them. Lord, you didn't wait for them. You went to them. And, Lord, I thank you. I, I receive that today, that you're a God that pursues you're a God that pursues us everywhere we're at in each and every season and circumstance. And God, I just pray that we wouldn't miss out on the party, God, that we wouldn't miss out on the embrace, that we wouldn't miss out on that kiss and the affection that you want to give us. I pray that we wouldn't miss out on, on that ident the identity of a son or a daughter that you just lavished upon these two sons. Lord, and I just pray that you're lavishing it on us today. God, no matter where we're at, God, I just pray in Jesus' name, you're coming to us, you're, you're embracing us, you're, you're the affection of the Lord. I just feel it in the room right now. God, I just sense, Lord, the affection of the Lord in the room. And I just pray right now, receive it. Just receive it. And maybe you, maybe you need the... The, the ring of, and, and declaration of a son. Maybe you need the, the robe, the, just the, the, the clothing, being clothed with that affection. Maybe you just need that place of just the embrace. <laughs> you just need a hug from the Lord this morning. Maybe you just need that place of just saying, no, okay, I recognize everything that is God is, he gives to us. And so, Lord, I thank you for that revelation today. And I just pray in Jesus' name we receive it. Receive it this morning. Receive it this morning. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for that, your faithfulness in that. And we thank you for your goodness. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.